please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello, good morning. It's Wednesday, the 28th of April, which only means one thing. It's time for your morning espresso. Before we get going, as ever, if you wish to listen to this conversation in a different language, you can do that by clicking on the button below and you'll have uh, various options there. We also have a Q&A button where you can send us your questions. But of course, there's always uh, the option of sending an email, and that would be to nordiafunds at nordia.com. Right, to kick things off this morning, I am joined by Sebastian Gali, who many of you will already know is our senior macro strategist. So good morning, Sebastian. Good morning, Paul. Hi. So Sebastian, um, we've been talking um, about China recently, and you know, there's there's a number of things uh, that make China rather interesting right now. And you have another measure that you wanted to share this morning. So perhaps you could take us through that. Sure. If we if we look at the slide, what you can see is a composite indicator built by Bloomberg, and in it, it shows that the economy is at a six, basically at a very hot temperature. Um, and that tells you that the economy is only not only supported by external demand, so exports to the United States eventually also uh, more to Europe as we open up in June and beyond, uh, but also by domestic factors. And where it still lags is uh, restaurants, for example, hotels, traveling, all of this are remain uh, weaker than they should be. And as it, what we expect is going to happen in the next few months is these sectors, which remain relatively weak, will improve. So we have an economy which is uh, hot, it operates roughly at 5.5% roughly uh, quarter on quarter uh, and will continue to operate at these levels and probably above these levels in the coming quarters. So it's a, it's a great story in China. It confirms our bullish thesis. Yeah, exactly. It's a sort of double whammy, isn't it? You've got that domestic demand uh, from the Chinese sort of growing middle class, but then you've also got the rest of the world that's slowly opening up after this COVID-19. What are they going to do? They're going to be buying things manufactured for a large part in China. Yes, indeed. Yeah. When it comes to the credit side, um, it seems that, you know, the credit markets right now seem to be sort of priced to perfection. And I just wondered what your take is on the fixed income markets right now. Sure. So looking at the slide, it shows two views of credit. One view of credit on the left-hand side is all these lines going downward from 1988 on are different tranches of credit. And that means different risk from AAA to triple B to triple C, so almost uh, credit defaults. Uh, and as uh, things uh, improve, um, then you see that slowly and steadily these yields go down. And they also go down when the economy is supposed to go, be better. And if you look on the right-hand side, this is another view of credit. And what you can see in the blue lines is that as the uh, expectations of the business cycle improve, then the yields fall on average in, uh, and are very much interlinked. So it, yields are a large part a bet on what the future growth is going to be. If you think things are going very well as they currently are, then yields are very low in terms of credit risk. And this is where we are. So we're priced to perfection, but we can actually get more perfect than we are right now. Not everywhere, but selectively, for example, double, double B tranche. Exactly. 
Great. So what we'll do is we'll just summarize this uh, with our last slide for this section this morning. And uh, we'll call that up. First of all, um, as we've mentioned, perhaps in the past, and uh, of course, we've had our, our colleagues over from um, for Manulife as well, who, who run our uh, China equity strategy and, and Remimbi bond strategy, um, because the bullish scenario for China is very much intact. Um, and, you know, the implication is that these are the asset classes that you want to be looking at right now. Most definitely, yeah. And uh, looking at the currency also, it has a low volatility. Uh, it's uh, probably will strengthen over the next few months. And if it weakens, it doesn't weaken that much. Uh, so it, it offers a, a great opportunity for a dollar-based investors. Your dollar is moving, of course. And then as we just touched upon, um, credit prices are looking for a better economy, of course, and that means a certain perfection. But, you know, there's still room for improvements in certain areas, but basically, you know, covered bonds, listed infrastructure, Remimbi bonds, these are the kind of asset classes that people should perhaps be looking at at this stage in the cycle. Um, and of course, you know, active solutions that are flexible, um, low duration as well. Um, these, are, these are all the, the asset classes that we would consider uh, could be of interest right now. They could be of interest as hedges. And of course, when everything is going well and you really want to focus on what's going wrong because this is what you can prepare for. And these are different asset classes, particularly covered bonds in uh, on the fixed income side and listed infrastructure on the equity side with this great uh, risk reward ratio. Yeah, exactly. And bond, bond investing is always a win by, don't, by not losing, isn't it? It's, uh, that's the mantra. And uh, yeah, when things are going well, you need to be looking at your next move. So it uh, makes sense. Great, Sebastian, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Paul. Right, well, uh, this week is a bit of a special one um, because at the end of this week, we see the 100th day in office for uh, President-elect Joe Biden. So we thought it would be a good opportunity to take a bit of a rain check um, and discuss what direction the US economy um, and the markets will be taking in the months ahead. So, Back by popular demand, we have Stephen Friedman, who is um, macroeconomist and managing director at Mackay Shields in New York. So good morning, Steve. Are you there? I am there. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hi, welcome back again. Uh, we've been talking before the election, just after the election, and here we are again. Time's fly flying by. Um, it's probably just worth mentioning, though, at the beginning, um, that the 100-day mark of a presidency is actually pretty arbitrary. It's not necessarily an indication of how the pre presidency uh, will be remembered. But of course, it can offer a window into you know, the president's priorities. So maybe we should just start um, by taking a look at you know, what was the main thrust of the new administration and uh, you know, what they've, they've accomplished so far. Yeah, that, I think that's a great place to start. And I will say that I think that the administration has outlined a pretty ambitious agenda. They've talked about their priorities around four crises that the US faces. First, you have the COVID health crisis. Second, you have the economic stresses related to that crisis. Third is the climate emergency. And fourth is issues around racial equity. Now, some of these can be addressed through executive orders and the actions of the administration. And of course, we've seen that. Others have required legislation. 
And in moving forward with legislation, I think the Biden administration is really trying to draw on some of the lessons from the Obama years and the response to the global financial crisis and the creation of the Affordable Care Act. And those lessons looking back are that those efforts may have been too small and they may have been too slow, uh, perhaps because there was too much emphasis on compromising with Republicans. So the idea now is that um, the administration is trying to go big or go home, as they say. And <laughs> if they need to move forward in a bipartisan manner, they've shown that they're more than willing to do that. And we saw that already with the American Rescue Plan. And, and I believe I have a slide on this. Uh, it was a very, very large plan. And this it's called the American Rescue Plan, but this was really about addressing the COVID health uh, health crisis. Um, it wasn't just providing support to the unemployed, but it also provided direct payments to households, even if they didn't suffer a loss of employment. There was support for schools and transportation systems, and there was uh, state and local government aid as well. So they accomplished it very quickly within two months, and it was very, very large. And you can see that here. What, what I show here is my estimate of the growth impact of the plan by year over the next five years. So in 2021 okay. alone, I estimate a growth impact of over 3%. Wow. That's going to lead to very, very strong GDP growth this year and next, and it's going yeah. to speed the return to full employment. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, someone was saying it's gonna be like the roaring 20s and <laughs> you know, you're gonna see, uh, well, let, let's see. Let's see what happens as, as everything opens up. Early signs from the UK is, is something similar. Um, literally, you know, at the end of last week, I was reading about about the pickup uh, over there. So I'm sure we'll see something similar in in the US as well. I guess uh, the obvious next question is: Okay, so you know what what comes next? You know, you you we've seen this big stimulus for the for the COVID to, to support the COVID nineteen recovery. Um, what, what's coming now? So now the administration is pivoting um, to infrastructure. In, in some ways, COVID relief was the easy part because there was a clear need and there was widespread support for additional uh, payments to households. Um, and so the administration now, as it turns to infrastructure, has again put together a very, very ambitious plan. Uh, I think I have a slide on this as well. And the amount that they're talking about at least in the initial proposals, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.5 trillion worth uh, of spending. So it's very, very expansive. It's also contentious because the definition of infrastructure that the Biden administration is using is very, very broad. So what you see here is their, their infrastructure plan includes things like environmental initiatives, uh, dollars for in-home healthcare workers, um, uh, even um, uh, water and power and housing and school construction. So it's it's beyond just building uh, uh, bridges uh, and roads. Uh, what's also new here is if you look on the right-hand side is that there are some pay-fors in, in the form of changes to the corporate tax code. Importantly, yep. uh, Democrats are proposing raising the corporate tax rate from 21% as established under the Trump tax cuts all the way up to 28%. Um, and that's already contentious. Uh, Republicans are against that. Even some moderate Democrats don't want to see the corporate tax rate uh, increase by so much. So I think they'll have to compromise maybe around a 25% corporate tax rate. That then means uh, under this plan, there's less revenue coming in, which means that ultimately maybe the outlays uh, can't be uh, as large as, 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 uh, as listed here. So in short, it's going to be a complicated process. It's going to be a, a drawn out one. I don't think we'll see something uh, signed into law here until September at the very earliest. And I think at the end of the day, um, the plan will actually be smaller than these initial numbers. Um, 
By the way, though, in, in the again, in the spirit of go big or go home, uh, the American Jobs Plan is going to be followed by yet another plan called the American Family Plan, uh, which is going to provide support for households in the form of uh, money for childcare, uh, pre-kindergarten pre programs, and also uh, 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 tuition for community college. So the fiscal pipeline is, is very, very crowded. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the numbers are absolutely mind-boggling, aren't they? And uh, yeah. I guess, you know, whether he gets it through at, at this 2.8 uh, or whether it's less, the direction of travel is, is set. And uh, absolutely, yeah, uh, we, we've actually, yeah, we've been talking to, um, we've, so we have a, a global listed infrastructure strategy run by CBRE Clarion. And uh, of course, you know, they're salivating at this and uh and also we have a global real estate strategy um mm -hmm. run by duff and phelps they're also salivating because i think it touches on on both of these uh asset classes um and and you know let's let's see what happens come september i think you know like you say you, you, they first of all they've got to get this approved but um i'm, I'm sure this will be <laughs> a big one one way or another yeah i think you summarized it well the direction of travel here is clear yeah so um, you know, you touched on on green there, and, and um, the Economist last week they had a headline which which made me laugh. It was uh, emissions impossible was the headline, <laughs> and, and basically what they were saying was that Joe Biden has has managed to um, assert America's role in the fight against um, uh, climate change, but actually the real work is is still ahead. And I just wondered what your take was in terms of you know his his global climate plans. Obviously, we had Earth Day um, last week, and um, you know, on, on Thursday, and uh, and actually, we launched a global green bond strategy that day. So, um, so yeah, I just wonder what your take was on on his his climate plans. So, I, I do think uh, first off that the administration realizes that U.S. credibility on addressing climate change has really been badly damaged over the past four years, and yeah. the administration is, is is dead set on trying to restore that credibility. So it's not surprisingly, one of the administration's first actions was uh, rejoining the Paris Accord. Uh, yeah. But now really the hard work has to begin. And we lost four years in this fight that quite frankly, we didn't have. Mm -hmm. um, so we did see from the administration recently a pledge to uh, cut greenhouse, greenhouse gas uh, emissions by 50% over the next 10 years. So that's a step in the right direction. Not a lot of details yet, but that's in the nature of politics. You, know, you, you roll out your big goals first, then you fill in the details later. Um, <laughs> what do we know so far? Um, there is a portion of the American Jobs Plan that is focused on um, environmental initiatives. It tends to focus on tax credits to incentivize a shift to clean energy. So tax credits to increase the share of electric vehicles on the road, for example, uh, increase the share of, uh, of electric power, derived from renewables. So to your point, it's moving in the right direction, but it doesn't seem enough uh, relative to the size of these pledges. And if we look at that next slide, uh, mm -hmm. we can see the impact that that pledge would have on, on, on emissions. So that's a, a good slope uh, down in that, in that pledge line for the US, yep. um, uh, certainly steeper than in other countries, but starting from a high level. So uh, it's again, it's moving in the right direction, but, but we need to see a lot more. And we need to see more details on how we actually get there. Yeah. Well, so so actually, we have a um, a dedicated ESG North American Stars strategy as well, and and I, you know I guess again you know money will flow into those those areas. I just wanted while we still have this slide, I just wanted to mention down here we see China, 
Um, and of course, there's been a lot of news coverage about the tensions between uh, Washington and, and Beijing. How do you think that one's going to play out? Yeah, that's a very good question. In, in some ways, um, I wonder if we'll see um, more volatility in the relationship under Biden than we saw under China. Uh, sorry, excuse me, than under Trump. Um, yeah. And that's because Biden is trying for a more multilateral approach uh, in addressing, for example, issues around uh, technology transfer and free but fair trade. Um, and that could put additional pressure on China that the Trump administration alone was not able to achieve. Uh, so it could lead to, excuse me, some greater uncertainty um, uh, uh, and certainly the prospects for um, you know, some harder banging on the on the respective tables by, by China and, and the U.S. Um, when it comes to tariffs, you know, interestingly, there I, I don't see the tariffs that the U.S. put in place on China coming down anytime soon, because there is a a broad sense in the electorate in the U.S. that the U.S. should quote unquote you know get tough on China, and mm. I think uh, reducing tariffs without seeing something very tangible and concern in, in 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 exchange is pretty much off the table. So I think the tariffs remain in place for a while. It's an interesting one because uh, last week on Morning Expresso, we had uh, friends from Manulife who, who run mm -hmm. um, China Equity Strategy. And, and I was asking um, the, the portfolio manager about that as well, you know, because, of course, as as the rest of the world sort of starts coming out to play again, um, you know, they're going to be spending money. Of course, that that potentially will flow into into Chinese uh, equities and, and also the bond market in, potentially as well. But um they're really pinning their hopes on more on the domestic play, you know, on, on that emerging middle class. And it'd be interesting to see how this plays out. But, you know, what tends to happen, people go out and spend money, that money ends up in countries where they're manufacturing uh, the stuff that we're buying. And uh, yeah, it tends to be beneficial for them. But of course, tariffs will, will have an impact, of course. But yeah. So let's go back to the US economy, because that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, Everything we discussed earlier has to be financed in some way, and uh, you know it seems that that the president's borrowed uh, Ben Bernanke's helicopter right now. Um, <laughs> perhaps a bigger one, a bigger version of Ben Bernanke's helicopter. Uh, how has the Fed reacted to this massive injection of, of stimulus spending? So, if I were to be uh, a little bit pithy, I, they haven't really reacted at all, and, <laughs> and that's in interesting because traditionally central banks will lean against fiscal stimulus. And in fact, yeah. we saw this in 2017, 2018, after Trump's tax cuts uh, went into effect, the Fed yeah. started to signal a somewhat steeper path of interest rate increases, um, trying to stabilize uh, the labor market around full employment and prevent an inflation overshoot. This time is different uh, for a few reasons. One, the Fed is certainly in favor of the type of fiscal relief that we just saw to address the COVID shock. And two, they tend to be in favor of longer term spending initiatives that can uh, boost the supply side of the economy. So things like infrastructure and education. But a third factor is at play as well here, which is that the Fed changed its monetary policy strategy last summer. Uh, they're moving to a, something called flexible average inflation targeting. We probably don't want to yeah. get too much into the details, but in a nutshell, they're trying to speed the return to maximum employment. And along the way, they would be happy to see inflation rise moderately above 2%. So yep. with all this fiscal stimulus in the pipeline, the Fed is still signaling no rate increases for a number of years. And a change in asset purchases is unlikely until 
uh, early next year. And I think they're probably fairly happy with how the markets have reacted so far to the confluence of uh, fiscal uh, stimulus and a very easy Fed. Uh, if we look at here at inflation expectations or inflation compensation, I should say, derived from the tips market, well, over a five-year horizon, uh, those uh, tips break-evens have moved uh, fairly high. Uh, and to the Fed, that will make sense uh, because it is a stronger inflation environment in the years ahead. But if we look over a 10-year horizon, inflation compensation still seems very, very well anchored around the Fed's 2% two, uh, 2 objective or, or two and a quarter percent in CPI terms. So seeing a chart like this, the Fed will probably feel uh, you know, relieved. Inflation expectations have risen, but not considerably over a longer time horizon. And I guess the velocity of money will, will play a big role in this as well at some point. It, it, it could, yes. Uh, we, we know the balance sheet has expanded uh, significantly. Uh, the money supply has been growing. Um, if velocity stabilizes or, or, or starts to move up, well, if we look at the other side of that equation, uh, what, what bears the brunt of that move? Is it, is it P or Q, prices or quantity? Um, so I do yeah. think we are going forward in, in an environment over the medium term where we'll likely see inflation in the two to two and a half percent range. So higher than in the past, but not materially so. Okay. But of course, you know, there's always implications, aren't there, on, on markets and, and knock-on effects potentially on, on interest rates. Absolutely. So then the next question, of course, I'm, I'm wondering what you, you know, do you think rates can continue to move higher now or is that it for the time being? It's a great question. And maybe we could dive a little bit into the recent past to answer that question. Yeah. Um, so I do have a slide on, on, the, on the rise in the 10-year yield and uh, decomposing that into its different components. So as we know, uh, the 10-year yield has risen fairly steadily since last summer with a very sharp move earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, what I do on the right-hand side is I, 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 I'm using a Fed model that, that sort of breaks apart that change in rates from August through March uh, by the different factors behind it. Um, mm -hmm. Let's start on the right-hand side of that chart on the right. Uh, over that, say, six to eight month period, the, ex the expected real short rate hasn't moved up. And I'll put differently, expectations for uh, the policy rate did not change. And that makes sense. With the Fed's new framework, they don't feel any uh, rush to, uh, to raise rates. Uh, if you look at inflation compensation, that explains a large portion of the move higher in rates. Uh, we've already talked about that. But let's look at that first component there, the real term premium. That's a, a large driver of the, the rise in rates. Uh, what is the real term premium? You can think about that as interest rate risk. You can think about uh, that as the extra compensation that investors demand for holding a longer duration asset. And it tends to reflect changes in expectations for supply. So both you know, new supply coming out of this, these fiscal stimulus measures, but also the outlook for asset purchases. So I do think rates can continue to grind a bit higher over the course of this year and next. And I think it will largely be because of a rise in the real term premium as markets digest new supply uh, needed uh, to fund these stimulus measures, but also the Fed slowly dialing down uh, their asset purchases beginning next year. To prevent this move from becoming disorderly and keeping it orderly, the Fed is going to have to continue to be very, very clear in their guidance uh, about uh, the expectations for QE and tapering. And they're laser focused on this. Almost every time they speak on QE, they're, they're doing what they can to calm the markets and to, to say that they will provide a lot of guidance at the, at the appropriate time. So as long as they, they get those communications right, I think the move to higher rates can be fairly orderly. But, but generally speaking, I, I, I do see us with a 10-year yield trading a bit above uh, uh, 2% um, sometime in the first half of next year. 
And uh, over at Mackay Shields, you run a number of strategies for us, uh, US corporate, we have a long duration, but also um, a low duration US uh, high yield bond strategy as well. So basically, depending on, on where you think rates are going, there's, there's something for everybody in, in that mix, I guess. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. But you know, I think our broad, our broad outlook is one where we see a very strong growth profile for the US economy. Um, that will likely mean fairly robust corporate profits, um, and one where um, credit spreads should should continue to perform very very well uh, going forward. So, and we also put a lot of stock in in the view that despite this strong growth profile, the Fed isn't going to be uh, pushing against it anytime soon. So we do think it can be a lengthy expansion, and that's one in which in which uh, risk assets, including credit, should perform well. Just just one, perhaps one last question relating to the US dollar, because we've seen some dollar weakness. Um, then there was, a, there was a little bounce. I just wondered if you had any views on, you know, where you think the, the dollar might be heading uh, for the rest of the year. That's a very good question. And I know there are concerns about debt sustainability in the US. Um, and very often the concerns about potential dollar weakness are, are linked to that concern. And over the long term, I think that is a valid concern. But over the next year or two, what I see is a, a strong U.S. economy, uh, higher interest rates relative to other developed markets, um, and also on a hedge-adjusted basis, U.S. Uh, interest rates look look fairly fairly attractive as well. So all of that to me suggests um, some modest dollar strength going forward, uh, at least uh, against um, other advanced economy currencies. So I don't at this point buy into the into the the outlook for a weaker dollar. I thought that there was some potential for a weaker dollar against uh, EM currencies, just in this strong risk-on environment, EM mm. can, can benefit. That might be on hold for the time being because we still have to see vaccine campaigns and emerging markets uh, ramp further up before I think there'll be a lot more confidence in investing in EM. Great, so that all sounds very, very positive, uh, perhaps a good positive note to finish on. Is there anything else you'd like to say uh, before we uh, wrap up for this morning? Yeah, just I think going forward, we, we, we do see a strong growth outlook for the U.S., no shortage of monetary and fiscal support. It's an environment in which we think risk assets will continue to perform well, though, of course, we're very attuned to the potential for some upside inflation risks. Excellent. Steve, thanks again for, for joining us this morning, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you again in the not-too-distant future. Uh, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. So next week on the 5th of May, um, we will be joined by Klaus Vorm and we'll be discussing um, the re recent sector rotation and the shift to value stocks and what it means for investors in stable equities. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our Stay Alert microsite and you'll find that at nordia.lu. And on that page, you'll find all of the past interviews. And what we do is we make those podcasts as well. So you can either watch them or listen to them on your device of choice. That's it for this week. I'll see you in May. <laughs>